You're listening to Programme 4 of the Norvision Podcast. Recorded to leave an oral history legacy of the journey of the Norvision Project. KCLR. Oral history and the recording of stories from the past is very important. And the Norvision Project has recognised this and included it as part of their community engagement strand of the project. For the past 18 months, Patrick Lydon has been heading up the oral history section of the project and recording people's stories up and down and in and around the Nor catchment. My name is Patrick Lydon and I've lived in the postal district of Callan since 1979, though I was born and reared in Boston. The main work of my life has been farming in inclusive communities with people with intellectual disabilities. Um, But I was an organic farmer, so I was very much connected to environmental um, activity. And also, I had studied history, but I had a natural interest in the wider sense of community and of the lives of people who are living around us, the, you know, the quality of life of rural Ireland. Um, and I, I wasn't particularly knowledgeable of rivers, but there wasn't a big jump to oral history, focusing on the Noor uh, and its catchment, from my experience. I was very, very interested to undertake an oral history project. Interested with interesting subject matter that Patrick really enjoyed listening to. That was just... Marvelous, absolutely marvelous. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, good, yeah. thank you. Really good, really good. It was an enjoyable experience, not least because he valued the significance and role of oral history in society. There are different schools and different strands of oral history. You know, one of them is just to record the spoken experience of people. And you know, the, the real quality of history for most of us is everyday life in our community, in, in our country, in, in, in where we live. So to record that um, by speaking to people about their experiences, perhaps that's the most important aspect of oral history, that you're really hearing from people what it was like to be alive in the 1950s or... 2021. But there are other approaches. I I thought a very good example was uh, the playwright, Thomas Kilroy, who who grew up in Callan. He did not experience the Civil War. He was born in the 30s. But his parents were very, very much involved in it. His father was the sergeant of the guards here, but he had been in the RIC before. But de Valera came in an election in the late 40s to Callan, and he spoke, and his parents had a really quite violent disagreement about what that signified. And he overheard an argument between them in the kitchen. And through that he said he he was a participant or he could experience what the Civil War was all about through overhearing them. So an oral, what he heard, became part of his upbringing and makeup of events that happened before he was born. Um, but in this case, with, with the Noor, the idea of taking a theme and getting people who had an experience of the river in different ways to speak about that and to reflect on what the river meant to them, how it changed in their lifetime, and changing attitudes, and to record that as a document partly about them, but less about them as individuals than their 
participation in a changing process and focusing on the river. When COVID restrictions and conditions allowed, Patrick organised workshops and invited people to attend to share their stories that had a connection to the North Catchment area. In August, for example, he was in Castle Comer to explore the theme of mining, which is unique to the North Catchment. There was a wonderful gathering of people who reflected on mining, but also the mining actually didn't have an obvious influence on the river. But the mining community lived among these rivers. So one man said in a survey in the 1960s, I think, somebody came to his mother and said, do you have running water? And she said, we do. You have it at the back of the house and at the front of the house. But we don't have it in the house. <laughs> There's two streams again. The very same as where I was born. There's two streams in front and behind me house. And I can, from Kilpatrick, I can jump across and into Crush. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at the back of the house. Sometimes the streams were borders. The border between Morning Row and Comer is a stream. It, it goes up at the end of the pitch yard, at, at number seven pitch. And there are styles, and that's the border. Mm -hmm. And the border between the border. Leash and Kilkenny is the kingfisher as a cross. Yeah, that's, this is just a simple stream, you jump over it. I remember the river, when the source of life around it. On the banks, you had water hens, you had otters, you had land rails, you had duck, you had everything, you had rabbits, hares, the whole lot. And all nature came there, and it was, it was habitat for birds, all wildlife. And the river brought that around because everything varied as the river moved down towards the sea. To be, you know, there were small holdings. If a farmer had a hundred acres, he was he was well up there in the thing. But the the ordinary one would be maybe ten to fifteen acres or twenty acres, couple of cows, just plodding along, making a living, and living fairly well. He was eating the best. He, thought he was eating all his own stuff. He had chickens in the yard. He had ducks. He had all sorts. And if he didn't want to milk the cows, he had a goat. It was three acres in a field. It was a big field. But it was hedgerows. Lots and lots and lots. It was the mainstay of the area. And the more hedgerows that you saw, the poorer quality of the land. Because they had to put, well, this is only my opinion, they had to put in the hedgerows to shelter the cows. And at the back of the hedgerows, there was always a drain. And the runoff of the water, and there was reason for drains. When, when, when floods come, it would slow down the water. And the water meandered down. It hadn't one straight run. It meandered down, and it came into the river. And by the time it got to the river, there was no pollution in it. It was filtered down to the river. Nowadays, as I, as I see, farming has changed. Government policy or whatever it was that they took it on, you must have bigger fields, you must get up with stock, you must do this, you must do that, tear, tear the living. And they took out, they took out, they started taking out hedgerows. And I've said it to many a farmer, I know a fair few farmers, in my way from Putin and all like that, taking out hedgerows in the areas of the world. 
to me was a disaster. There was a miner who had written a book about his um, mining experience. There was a national teacher, this wonderful story that um, in the national school, they brought the children to the, their local river, to the bridge just outside of Comer, and taught the children to swim in their river. And there was, you know, reflecting on the times, there was the boys' sandies, a little beach, and a, the girls' sandies. I suppose it was called the sandies because the river flowing fast, I suppose, deposited sand somewhere near the bank. And there was a very deep area uh, in the boys' sandies, and they called it Romeo's Hole, because I think the local Romeos from the town came out and probably christened it, gave it that, that name. But uh, Tom Gleason, the postman, he had his instructor certificates, and he was a very good swimming teacher. And he built a diving board at the, at the boys' uh, sandies, and they'd dive in, and of course the, the, the experienced divers, they'd, they'd go up and climb a tree and straight down into the river, they'd dive into the river. But the girls were more genteel, and uh, they were further up the river. Later on then, Tom Gleason and John Joe Byrne cleared an area of the river down at the back of the Prince. That was a deep, a deep area, and they built uh, another diving board there, and uh, John Joe Byrne uh, got a galvanised shed from Wandersford and they erected it in the wood and that was the dressing room. So they carried on the swimming lessons there. Who will bring their children to the river to learn to swim? I think it will be people who recall doing it themselves. You know, for a generation there's been the impression, which might be true, that the river was unsafe. It was dangerous, possibly, and you, it's a place you would be telling your children not to go to. But the people who recall that, well, that wasn't always the case, and we can make that change, mm. I think they will have an impact. But uh, I, I had a great conversation just a couple of hundred yards from here. I was in another park in Callan by the river, and a fellow stopped and said, Do you see over there, 15 yards away, so that's where I learned to swim, in a hole in the river. Mm. Now, no children have swam in that river there for, for the last 30 years. But he's, he's not an old man. He's probably maybe 50. History doesn't determine the future, but I think we have potential to link to it. So my earliest memories of um, swimming in Kilkenny would have been we'd all pile into the car with uh, the family and the neighbours and we'd go out to the dining and when you were kind of a toddler you'd start off on the just the lower side of the bridge and the bigger boys and girls would be up above the bridge so you'd graduate up to the bigger pool up there and then of course you'd come back in from the dining and sometimes occasionally we'd come in along the bleach road you'd be passing by Greenvale Weir and there would always be a crowd there in the summer, more people swimming. That was the home of uh, the Dipper Swimming Club and it was also that later became the Greenvale Swimming Club. And, uh, but I don't think my father used to like uh, bringing us back that way because he thought we'd get ideas about uh, uh, making our own way out and going swimming out there and it was uh, 
that was for the was for the big fellas. The river was actually higher back then in the sixties because Green's weir wasn't broken. So that held back the water and there was a higher level of water going back up the river, you know. But um swimming was very popular in the sixties, but there was a spate of drownings in the late sixties in the river. But there was a big demand at the time, you know, for a safe place to swim and a safe place for kids to learn how to swim. And kind of out of that came the building of James Stevens Swimming Pool and, you know, chlorinated water and, um, uh, you know, better hygiene, I suppose. And, you know, for the for 30, for 40 years then, you know, it was all James Stevens Swimming Pool in Kilkenny, but... The weir was always, people always swam at the weir, just, you know, uh, in Kilkenny, Greenwell Weir. And um, it's uh, come back again, open water swimming and swimming in rivers. Uh, you could get, you know, there's, there's people still swimming in the river at this time of the year. A quote from David Attenborough that was very relevant, I thought, was that you'll only protect what you care about and you can only care about what you know. And that in a time when people didn't go much to the rivers, they didn't have much kind of personal experience there, is giving way to a time when people realize the importance that if you don't protect it because you didn't care for it, because you didn't know about it, that getting to know these places will then start that going in the right direction. And COVID, you know, the silver lining of COVID has been I think a very, very deep and widespread re-engagement with the natural world. I suppose life on the river in Callan, um, the memories from my corner probably would be really, when we got them real hot summers, maybe in the early 80s, you'd see the troves of people heading up along West Street. They'd all be heading up with their, their towels and bits and pieces. On a hot day, a lot of people headed to the river, you know late 70s, early 80s, you wouldn't even get anywhere to, to, to sit down on the edge of the banks to be people there diving in. And be very interesting to see the different um, the different styles, I suppose. We were young, probably couldn't swim. You saw people there who, like, you know, had great movements and, you know, we'd splash around. What was very popular probably at the time was getting their hands on a, a big lorry tube, if you're lucky enough. And, and the fun would have been had then floating down the river and there was a time then a few of us got together and we got a few pallets together and hijacked a few tires and we, we built what we thought was the most magic <laughs> little boat, <laughs> little raft. And we used to float on down, we right across from the house was Malay's and they had a little yard at the back there and we head down to the river there. We used to keep our little raft down there, you know. Then some of the bright sparks from the other side of the town came and tried to hijack our raft and we had to go and try and hijack it back from the lower side of the river down at the Friary Bridge and get it back in. <laughs> you know, the bypass would have came then as well and that would have kind of broke off the path that people had to get up to the higher end of the river. Transport got better, people went into swimming pools in Kilkenny. The reality then, you know, the facility probably changed as well, you know. The river was cleaned, it probably wasn't as deep. You know, now you go down and you look in Thomastown, you see there the possibilities. The possibilities to create things there was very, you know, the amount of design teams and everything that's out there, there's funding for all these kinds of things. So it's, the imagination would be, be fantastic to see people back on the river. I think now this year, 
for the first time with the creation of the moat trail that's there, you've probably seen more people interacting with the river presently than we have seen over the last 20 years. You know, people went off the river, now people are back on it, you know. Even to listen to the older generation and the old stories, you know, the fishing that was done on the river and, yeah, some magic stories. You know, Callan, the King's River, like almost every other river, for a long time was its principal purpose for the town was a sewer. Mm. Yeah, so there wasn't piped sewage um, until recently, and it's not entirely in place either. Um, in Kilkenny and Thomastown, there are official swimming places in the river with a lifeguard, uh, and they're safe and well-managed. Uh, that's not existing in Callan yet, but I think the way uh, the, the whole purpose of Norvision is to bring that time mm. closer. I got my first salmon below the weir when I was six and um, I loved moving water and I, I, I think it has a sort of a healing power. Fishing in fast water below the weir sort of saved my sanity after my father died because I could go down there and almost lose myself and, and, and I think when you're in the water uh, fishing, your thoughts are outside yourself and you have to focus on something else. The other thing I remember as a kid, we'd always go up to Ballyredden Weir and there was a pool just above the weir and that's the swimming place. Everybody swam there. The opposite side of the river there, there was a, a sheep dip in the, in the head race and every year friends would come along and they'd get all their sheep and throw them in off, off the bridge and uh, they'd swim down 20 or 30 yards and be hauled out again. I don't know what it did to the sheep because I'm sure it didn't clean them or anything. But it was great fun watching, especially for kids. Uh, bobbing for eels was the way we used to get our uh, eels. It was a gruesome enough job. You got some hemp string and you got your earthworms and you threaded them on and made a big hank of it. And then you dipped them in the river on a long stick and then would haul them up when you felt pulls. The boats on the river, cots were the only thing at that stage. They were about 20 foot long and used for everything, but they were always kept under the trees uh, so that the sun, sun rays didn't dry them out. And you kept a bit of water in the bottom of them also to keep the wood from uh, cracking. So you'd have to splash that out. The original idea in you know, COVID apart would have been done was that you would go to a village or a, a town and announced you would be holding this event and 30 people would come and you would um, hear what people had to say. You would have gradually focused on the people who had really interesting stories to tell and that was this personal, the personal side of oral history. There was a famous incident in the mines in Ballingarry. Um, they're very near the rising of the Kings River but there's a vast, vast system of water underground that that we don't see, uh, but the mines were built on being able to pump that water out. And they saw that there was water seeping in from a place where it shouldn't have been, or they didn't know that it was there. But this burst, and it inundated the mine, and the man was killed, he was drowned. Uh, and two men, yeah, two brothers, were up a shaft of the mine above where that flood was, but, but their way out was blocked. They, and they were there 
for some hours thinking that they were lost. I was up about 50 or 60 yards up the chapel anyway, and um, the next thing I heard my brother getting in at the bottom, in the headlace, that's what they call it, you know. And the next thing, bang, I heard this bang. The fog of smoke passed us. Jesus, I said, what's wrong? Oh, Jesus, I said, what's wrong? And it, the next thing anyway, he came up to me as such, you know, he came up to me. And the next thing we heard some of the boys coming up to us, and he said, the whole place is flooded. And they're shouting, you know, the, the whole place is flooded. Oh, Jesus, I said, what's wrong? She was panicked straight away, you know what I mean? That, and, uh, oh, God, I said, what happened? And the water rose up, and the road was after falling. But the, 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 the water bursted, and it washed, in the, it washed the timber down as such, and the road fell in. And when the road fell in, it, the water backed up to us, you know. But we were all right as such. We were up and we were up and in line. I couldn't get up to us as such. The only thing we'd be would have dreaded was that to hit the roof and cut off our air or whatever the case may be. But having said that, we had air from the compressors. We had our machines, and uh, oh, we thought we were doomed as such, and we said our prayers. We said our prayers and. Uh, one thing led to another, and uh, the next thing, after some hours, we heard noise coming from the outside, banging the pipes and different things. And uh, then we knew they were coming from the outside to get us, get us out. But um, there were two people inside us. There were brothers, Peter O'Donnell and Jerry O'Donnell, was it working inside us. And they didn't even know the place was flooded. Until such times as the coal backed up on the shoes and one of them had to go down and Peter said to Jerry, them lads of the road is not taking any coal out of the shoes. He'll have to go down and take it out. So when he came down, sure, he put his feet out in the water, you know. The, and uh, gosh. So then they were in the position there where they couldn't move the same as ourselves. But uh, who came up to us that night was Jim Maher. He was from Monlahan and Jimmy Lawler from the Commons. Michael Leafy was the fireman. And uh, that, that was it, myself and my brother, and them three boys, they came up to us. And uh, they, came, they came from the outside then to let go of the water, and, but the road was after washing, falling in with all this rock. We got out, we got out some way out and got up to here in water or whatever. Anyway, we got out. The themes were mining, were sport, recreation, which might be swimming, might be paddling, but other kind of water-based sports. One was personal livelihoods, which hardly exists now, but there are the sons and daughters of mainly men who made a living catching fish. And one was farming, and one was energy, that a hundred years ago, there were uncounted mills, and they were, they were able to engineer you know, the flow of water on very, very small streams, enough to drive a mill. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a few of them developed turbines from the 1930s uh, and generated energy to run the mill. And the idea of hydropower has been very, very underdeveloped in Ireland, but it's a very efficient source of energy 
question of wind, you know, sometimes it doesn't blow. Well, the water is flowing 365, 24-7. There was a, a mill here back in Asarbe done in 1650. But my great-grandfather took over the operation of this mill here in 1886. At the time, it was a corn mill, and he converted it to a sawmill using the two existing water wheels as a source of power for the, for the mill. We did change over from directly powering the sawmill with the water wheel to indirectly generating electricity with the water wheel and turbines and uh, then using that electricity in the sawmill process. It, you wouldn't know it's hydropower. All the appliances, they work absolutely fine. You, you, you think you're just hooked up to the grid as normal, but in reality, it's really, you're hooking up to the river. There's two power systems in the mill, just normal domestic voltage, and then there's three-phase as well uh, that we use for uh, the bigger saws. We, we take what we need, and then the surplus then is put onto the grid for other users to use. The planning obstacles are enormous. You know, every river is a SAC, Special Area of Conservation, or it's an SPA, Special Protection Area, or it's both. And there's European directives that um, heavily guard these areas, and rightly so. But there's anyone looking to put in a new turbine faces big hurdles. There are many, many mills and raceways at the moment, which are just eyesores. They're attractions for antisocial behaviour, you know, they're dangerous, they're falling into disrepair. But they're occupying the most beautiful and scenic areas of our towns and rivers. So the, the narrow viewpoint is just look at energy alone. The wider viewpoint is you either should do something with these and the best way to preserve them or get them functioning or create some value is, is to restore them and turn them into an amenity. I think in the future, there's a case to be made for restorations using very efficient water wheels, you know, modern technology, taking a small amount of water and not being in conflict with the other stakeholders in cooperation with the fisheries and ensuring fish passes, etc. But it has to be done on a small scale that doesn't require, you know, five years of study and several hundred thousand euros of consultant fees doing studies. There's a huge amount of stakeholders, but it needs a little bit of joined up thinking, you know, for these things to happen. It re requires a holistic view. It requires to take a modest amount of water, which, not, which is not in conflict with any of the other stakeholders. And it requires several value streams, not just energy. That's the problem of the governance, that all of those bodies have an interest in the river, but they're silos of understanding and responsibility and the silos find it very difficult to meet or agree or to negotiate between them because they've all got a rule book and they're you know it's very difficult to play um, hurling and rugby on the same pitch with the same teams different rule books they can't do it Norvision is an absolute national leader in this governance one of the parallel projects is in a river system in Donegal, it's all within one county, much, much smaller flow of water, much smaller population. The Noor catchment engages 110,000 people in four local authorities. 
it's a whole complex question that everybody knows this has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And if you're interested in finding out more about Norvision, then check out their website, norvision.ie. The Norvision Radio Series is funded by Kilkenny Leader Partnership CLG through the Department of Rural and Community Development and the EU.